Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Well, as we come this morning to Mark chapter 10, we come upon uh, a pivotal scene. We come upon a pivotal scene here. The passage you just heard Katie read is the final episode in uh, Jesus and the disciples making their journey toward Jerusalem where Jesus will be eventually crucified. So this is, they're, they're almost to Jerusalem is the idea here. They're actually about 20 miles out, but basically they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem and uh, they are, um, and this is the final scene. And, and we, we jump into chapter 11, Jesus makes his triumphal entry. And so this is a pivotal moment in this text. And so as we come to it, what I want to do this morning, I want to ask you a very simple question. You don't need to answer out loud, but I want to ask you a very simple question. What do you need in life? What do you need in life? What do you need to be the person that you know you ought to be? What do you need to have a full, happy, successful life? What do you need? When I was 16, I thought I needed girls and no schoolwork and lots of fun, right? When I was 19, I needed to party a lot, find more girls, and I needed money without having to work or take any responsibility. Those were my needs, right? I look back at my 16-year-old and my 19-year-old self and realize my perceived needs were very dumb, extremely stupid, immature, and wrong. <laughs> I can look back and see that my perceived needs were not my real needs, right? right? The things I thought I needed at 16 or 19 or 23, 26, 30, 35, or in June when I turned 45, right? The things I think I need end up being illusions, faulty and perceived needs that just fail to actually deliver on any promise that we think that they're going to bring us. Jesus in our passage today speaks to our needs. This is the, he is speaking directly into our perceived needs. He reveals to us, he reveals to his disciples what our true basic needs are. And we are confronted with the reality that our real needs are not what we think they are. <laughs> they are just not what we think they are. This passage, as I've already said, is the final scene prior to Jesus and his disciples reaching to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to meet the cross. And along this long journey to Jerusalem, as we have heard week after week, Jesus is teaching his disciples and the dominant, simple truth that has come out over and over and over again is that the road to glory is paved with humility and has to go through a grave to get there, right? We've seen this over and over. And we, like the disciples, tend to be blind to that, blind to the needs that we have um, that will help us get through that. And so Jesus here, in an effort 
uh, to rewire the disciples' hearts, to rewire our hearts, um, shows him say the same thing he's been saying, except he's going to focus in on their perceived needs. He's going to tell them, he's going to tell you and me, what we need is healing, not power. We need healing, not power. And he shows this to us, he shows this to them in three different ways. We'll see these come out of here. Uh, the first will be pre, uh, prevailing versus defeat. Two, somebody versus nobody. And three, ruling versus healing. So we're going to look through those three things together. So first then, prevailing versus defeat in verses 20, or 32 for 30 through 34. I don't know if you all remember this, but in 2021, there was the Olympics and was watching the Olympics, excited to see especially what was going to happen in women's gymnastics. And if any of you remember that season in, um, in our Olympic history in America, uh, we were all shocked. We were all amazed and wondering what was going on when Simone Biles, our decorated champion, right? She just quit right in the middle of it, right? The confusion, the rumors, the judgments that people were making, and even the anger that came out was pretty in intense. This was, a, this was a shocking, difficult thing, especially when, if we take the Olympics seriously, there's a lot on the line, right? There's national pride on the line. When your star athlete, the one you're relying on to put you over the top, walks away, well, even me, who doesn't, it doesn't really care all that much. It's entertaining, but I don't really care all that much about it. I was confused and a little dismayed by it. I was like, what's going on, right? I was wondering what was going to happen. Now, in verse 32, as we come in this text, I think we see something of this nature. Verse 32 says to us, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they, meaning the disciples, were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. They are amazed and they're afraid on their way to Jerusalem. They just watched the star, the decorated person that they were going to see as the one who would help get them over the top, walk away from the effort to help them build the kingdom of God. We saw this last week. The rich young ruler walks away sad and no doubt the disciples and the people that are trying to work with Jesus to help, you know, to build the kingdom of God, they watch this happen and they are deeply discouraged. Jesus pushes the rich young ruler away and he walks from the team sad. Their job, their job was to bring God's rule, his reign into the world, to push back Satan, overthrow oppression, to bring healing, to bring life, to bring flourishing to God's people. And the star they thought they needed to help them get the job done, left. And now, they're wondering what to do. They're dejected, they're worried, they're scared. We all know this feeling. When, you're neat, when the thing you think you need is taken from you. When it's 2 a.m., you have to get up in the morning, go to work. You know you have a long, hard day in front of you. What do you know? What do you know you need sleep? That's what you know. You know you need sleep. So when your kid starts fussing, when they're awake and interrupting your sleep, you're amazed and afraid. <laughs> you're amazed and you're afraid, right? 
The thing you perceive you need is no longer an option for you to lean upon for your hope and joy and confidence. And so frustration and irritation supplant hope and joy, right? And no longer is your child, no matter their age, someone to love and enjoy. There's someone to shut up and get away, right? That's what happens. In those moments, we panic like the disciples here. And rather than notice there in the passage, the very first line in verse 32, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Notice that. Rather than walking with Jesus, communing with Him, enjoying Him, and receiving His kingdom as a child, we hang back, worried, irritated, scheming, complaining, entertaining discussion about Jesus' incompetence as a leader, and discussing the seeming impossibility of doing what God has asked us to do. They're separated from Christ, right? But look at the end of verse 32. Look at the end of verse 32. Though their disillusionment has has put a separation between them and Jesus. At the end of verse 32, rather than going on without them, rather than Him allowing them to stay back there, disassociated from them, look at the grace of God here. His patience and grace are on display to help them in their ignorance. He goes back and He he meets them in their disillusionment and in their fear. So He, for Jesus then, for the third time now in Mark, This is not the first time the disciples have heard this. This is now the third time in Mark explains yet again how the kingdom of God is going to come. He's going to tell them again as if they hadn't heard it. He shows them that they don't need riches or the influence of a rich young ruler. Their perceived needs aren't real. They're not the thing they need. Verse 33, he shows them their real need. It is not prevailing. It's actually defeat and death which is crazy, right? Look at, look at what he says there in verse 33. He begins to tell them, this is, he's showing them, this is how the kingdom of God is coming. It is coming through a horrible rejection and death. They don't need a man of social influence to establish the kingdom of God. They need Jesus to be condemned to death by the social elites. They don't need money and financial influence, they need Jesus to be delivered from the, delivered to the corrupt authorities who want him dead. They don't need a man of good reputation. Instead, they need Jesus to be given over to people with horrible reputations, the oppressors, the dogs of their society. That's how the Jewish people referred to the Gentiles. Jesus needed to be handed over to the dogs. They don't need social influence, political power. They need Jesus to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be flogged and to be shamefully killed publicly. They need social humiliation. <laughs> like, this is crazy, right? They need social humiliation. They need public rejection. They need utter and total defeat. They need it so profoundly that a rich young ruler would actually be a distraction rather than a help in establishing the kingdom of God. Right? It's backwards. It's, it's shocking to read that. And yet, if we read that last sentence in verse 33, what do we find? We find that death is not the whole, it's not the whole story. Right? It's not the whole story. So in verse 33, at the very, uh, I'm sorry, at verse 34, verse 34 it says, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. After three days he will rise. That 
through death, that through defeat comes new life, flourishing, comes hope, comes resurrection and new creation. The remaking of the world, the defeat of death itself. And what Jesus is trying to show them here, what what Jesus is trying to show you, is that if we want heaven on earth, that we go through death to get there, not through worldly displays of power, riches, and influence. And this is what Jesus did. Spilling His blood for you and me. And rather than that being an act of purely powerless failure, it was the most powerful act in history, right? Purifying, transforming, and accomplishing the perfect and full salvation of God's people. And as He walks victorious out of the grave... He carries in His hand power, authority, and glory to dominate over Satan, sickness, and death itself. So what the disciples don't see, what they just don't get, even though they've been told it three times, is that it's death that they need to get to the new life and to the new hope. They need a kind of apparent failure. In this, God makes death a tool for building His kingdom. He has such sovereign control over the world that death is not an obstacle. It becomes a tool in His hand to build His kingdom, which is so profound we can't even begin to imagine it. Our eyes just simply fail to see it. And so we focus on things that distract rather than move us toward the kingdom. And so we feel the need to prevail. We feel feel the need to find ways to scheme and make it happen, but we just simply fail to see that the path To prevail requires that we go through the grave to get there. And so then Jesus calls us to pick up our cross daily and to follow Him, to go through the grave behind Him, to see our pain, our disappointment, our weariness, our experience of unfair treatment. Rather than an obstacle, as the structural material that builds the kingdom of God and our flourishing through which new life emerges. Which is a totally different perception of the world, a completely upside-down vision for the world. And so, in application of this, we should ask ourselves some questions. I need to ask myself these questions because this is clearly a struggle for all of us, especially me. Do you see financial struggle as a tool to take you to glory? Or is it an obstacle to overcome? Do you see sleepless nights with your kids crying as a path to glory? Do you see the struggle to love and serve someone who takes advantage of you or exploits you as the path to glory? Do you see your weary and weak pains and anxieties as the very road that God has for you to walk that will take you directly to glory? Do you know that they are not a distraction from glory, but the very bricks that build His kingdom in your life? Do you see that? That's what Jesus wants the disciples to see He points out their real need. So, second, not only do they need death, but when we compare, secondly, being somebody versus nobody, Jesus points out our real needs. In verses 35 to 45, Jesus shows us that being nobodies is the pathway to glory. So, I love my dog, Ruthie. I love her to death. But, but, (laughs) when she comes into the house after playing, she comes in panting like a psychopath. She gets right up in your face 
and her hot breath not only assaults you, but her rapid-fire breathing is very loud and very annoying and distracting. It makes me want to go crazy. Even my wife gets annoyed by it, so it's not just me. Now, here's the thing. I will look at her and I'll say, Ruthie, go lay down. No matter how many times I tell her, she's just totally blind to what I want. Totally, totally ignorant of what I want. Totally dense to my tone. She hears, she hears my anger and irritation toward her, like, go lay down. And what she thinks is, oh, he must want to play with me. And so it just, it, when I tell her to go lay down or express any irritation to like try to move her along, all it does is excite her and make her want to come and engage me more. I have to imagine. You've got, you got to see, I think. Jesus has to feel this way with his disciples. The more he tells them the kingdom is coming on a road paved with humility that goes through a grave, what they hear is not humbly accept death and pain as the road to glory. What they hear is Jesus, needs, Jesus is going to give us power and influence and money and social credit to help him build his kingdom. Let's do it. They hear the opposite of what they're actually being told. Because on the heels of Jesus telling His disciples the kingdom of God comes through His death, when we read verses 35-45, James and John walk into the room like my dog. Having heard Jesus say all this, and they hear the exact opposite of what He means. They hear the exact opposite of what He's trying to do. And so look at verse... 37 with me. James and John in verse 37 ask if they can sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. Now for us, that, that probably sounds odd, right? That's not necessarily language that we are used to. That's not language that we normally use. But in that culture, in most ancient cultures, this is how a king would position himself. He'd sit on his throne in, the, in his own glory, in his castle or whatever. And on that king's right and left would be the, his highest-ranking officials. So, so in this, James and John are not asking to sit close to Jesus when they go to eat dinner that night, right? They're not like, hey, Jesus, you know, we really want to talk about the football game from last week. Can we sit in close proximity to you so we can have a good conversation about football? That's not what's going on. They're asking to be the highest-ranking power duo in the kingdom underneath of him. Jesus can be glorious and king. That's fine. But they want first and second rank under him over everyone else. And <laughs> Jesus' response to this is great. Not only do the disciples say that's a crazy thing to ask, and they're, it says indignant at them for saying it. I'm not going to focus on it. But I think that's important to note. But Jesus here in this passage gives them three clear reasons why this is just a really, a really dumb idea and it is not a real need. It is a perceived need that they have. It is not their real need. And so the first reason he gives them is they just don't know what they're asking. They just don't, they have no clue what they just asked to do. They don't know that there's a cup of suffering and death that they have to drink to get there. And though, and here's what's crazy in verse 39, they're like, oh yeah, we'll drink that cup. <laughs> and so Jesus is like, okay. You'll drink it, <laughs> all right? You'll drink it. But Jesus understands in verse 38, they don't really want that. That's why he says, you don't have a clue what you're asking here. You don't know what kind of pain 
you don't know what kind of craziness you are inviting into your life with that kind of question. They are clueless. They are blind to what this means and how bad things are actually going to get for them on that hard road of following Him. But also, they aren't just ignorant of how hard the path is. They're ignorant of the politics of the kingdom. They just don't know, they don't know what they're talking about. When they say, can we sit on your right and, hand, right and left hand? Jesus, as we learn, is actually going to be on the right hand of God the Father. So they're in, they don't know it, but they're basically like, can we pull a coup on you and take your spot? Like they don't, they don't, they just, they're ignorant. They're totally blind to the, pol- to the political power structure of God's kingdom and their rightful place in it. They don't just get the politics of the way of the kingdom wrong. They are blind to it and blind to the road it takes to get there. So Jesus is like, no, you guys just don't get it. The second reason he gives them in verse 42 is that the desire, even if it were possible for them to to get that position, would corrupt them and they would use it for evil. That's what it would do to them. They, They would, if they were actually given that position, they would turn into a despotic tyrant and rule over people just like the rest of the world does when they're given that kind of power, not even the second command to God. He speaks there in verse 42 of the rulers of the Gentiles who lord their power over other people. He's speaking, we all know this, of the tendency of political leaders to exploit oppressed people. Having that power in their hands would unleash out of James and John the same corruption that evil dictators display. So not only is this power deadly for them, in trying to pull a coup on God, it would be deadly for everyone else if they had it. So it's just a bad idea. But then he gives his ultimate reason in verses 43 and verse 44. He wants them to see that their need, their perceived need for power and influence to be somebody, a person with influence and power and greatness, actually comes by being powerless to being a nobody who is invisible and who is passed over. That is the path to glory. The language of being first in verse 44 is very significant for the disciples and for people in that culture. Ancient cultures, you need to understand this, ancient cultures had a very robust understanding of what it meant to be first. They bestowed power, they bestowed status, and all family inheritance was ultimately placed upon firstborn children in the family. Firstborn children had all the influence. They were the somebodies of a family. In America, being firstborn doesn't mean much in terms of benefit, power, and a family. So it's kind of lost on us, but in that culture, it was everything. If you were firstborn, you ran the family eventually. And there was no question about it. Not only do we find that in biblical history, we find it in in other cultures all around that uh, among pagan cultures as well. Well, that is not how it's going to be for God's people. Firstborns would get everything just because they came out of the birth canal first. But in Scripture, we find an interesting thing happening all throughout the whole Old Testament where God is undoing that. Where the first actually becomes last and the last becomes First, we see it all throughout the Scripture. 
who read through the Old Testament, you come up against Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born first. Well, Isaac carries on the authority for the family of God, not Ishmael. And then you get to Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first, but Jacob gets the blessing. Joseph was the youngest of his brothers, and yet he is the, the, the one who would get the power and get the influence. And then later, with others, including young David, right? when Samuel comes out to anoint a new king, David's family, they talk to David's dad, and he says, oh, you're gonna, one of my boys is going to be the king? That's awesome. And so he brings out all of the boys. He leaves the youngest out in the field tending sheep. And so when Samuel goes through the line, he's like, don't you have any other kids? Because none of these are him, right? None of these are him. And, Sam, and, and David is invisible. He's not, he's, not even in, he's, he's not even significant enough to even be considered. And yet, Samuel has them bring David in and he's the king. He's the one who takes Authority. This is, God is undoing the, na the natural order of the corrupt world. He shows he prefers the last, the nobody, the overlooked, to bear his power and his covenant. God breaks cultural val values here to show that being a nobody is actually the pathway that he chooses for greatness and power and influence to come. For us, we tend to think that if we can figure out a way to make a splash, to be big, to hold out, a powerful and influential position to go viral in our world today, to gain attention, get our name out. Whatever we need to do, we feel the need to do whatever we can do to get there, to get to that place of of of, of influence, because that is how you're going to actually accomplish something in the world. That's how you're going to build something of significance, of 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 value. And yet, what does Jesus see here as the great need for him? In verse 45, what is Jesus' need? For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give up His life as a ransom. Right? How many Christians, how many Christians, and I speak out of experience here, unfortunately, um, how many Christians are unimpressed and irritated with quiet, simple, small, tiny, and invisible efforts to reach the world for Jesus. I can tell you as a pastor that when churches do small things that are invisible, it invites the accusation of laziness and carelessness regarding the mission of God. We tend to, because we are, we are primed by the world to believe that we get things accomplished when we do big things and get lots of attention. That is exactly what Jesus is pointing against. Why Jesus, even when he would do ministry, was always telling people, don't tell anybody what I did when he's going around doing his ministry, telling people to keep quiet about what he did. Jesus is very clear here. Being small, being invisible, is the pathway to accomplishing things, is the pathway to success, to be great, then is to become invisible, to be overlooked, mistaken as lazy, or not doing things. While we labor on out of you, serving diligently, self-sacrificially, 
It's actually through that that there's power. There's glory. It is the path of Jesus. And it's our path as an obscure and quiet person for the glory of God. It's why Jesus came as looking, as we read in Isaiah 53, it's why he came looking as an ordinary man. If Jesus, if Jesus thought that gaining the attention of the world was important, he would have came back as a six foot six, beautiful specimen of a man. Right? But that is not, that is not his way. According to Jesus, your need is not to be seen, not to obtain status, not to obtain position. Our need, our need is to be overlooked, which is crazy. Our need is to be invisible, to be the youngest child, the one sitting alone amongst the sheep in obscurity that no one knows or cares about, that's not even being considered. And yet, miraculously, it is out of that grave out of that obscurity that God's manifest power and greatness comes, which is backwards. It's totally backwards, right? Do you see that the road to glory really is a humble path that goes through a grave? Now, last, the last section in this text. We see him showing us that the way is through death and by being a nobody, but now he focuses in here. It's so, it's so cool. In verses 46 to 52, we see ruling versus healing. Now, if this section here is not just pure irony, I don't know what irony is. Right? right? I don't know what else it could be. The disciples, like us, have proven themselves blind. They don't see how the grave could lead to glory. They don't see that power would kill th- that would kill them and others. Um. Is a, they don't see that their need for power is a problem, right? They don't see that their need for riches is a problem. They don't see that their need for influence, attention, and help from like a rich young ruler is a problem. They don't see that Jesus doesn't need any of that help, let alone their help or, self, some, or some self-sufficient rich young ruler. They're blind to their real needs. Right? They're, they're blind. This is why Jesus tells us over and over and over again. They just don't see it. They don't hear it. And Jesus then, in this, just in the irony of this, is thick. He puts on display for them what their real need is. He goes out and he heals a blind guy. And he does it in a way that it's obvious he's making a real salient point to these disciples. James and John ask Jesus to, that they, so that, uh, a question hoping that they will be able to rule. And in verse 47, a blind beggar asks for mercy. Do you see the difference? Jesus, we want power. We want to rule. And in verse 47, you see this blind beggar, have mercy on me. The difference is incredible. He's not power hungry. He's not looking for status. He's needy. And he begs Jesus for help, right? Jesus serves this blind beggar, making him the slave of a man who has nothing and can see nothing. And in verse 49, Jesus says, well, how can I serve you? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus becomes his servant. Jesus serves a man who is at the very bottom of society. And that blind man, though he can see nothing, sees more clearly than the disciples. He he sees far more clearly than the disciples. He he sees he is small. 
He sees he's in need. He sees he needs new sight. He sees he needs healing and help. He does not ask for power. He doesn't ask for riches or influence, but just to simply perceive the world as it is with Jesus as king. That's what he asked for. I want to see the world as, Jesus, as it is with Jesus as king. And notice, <laughs> this is ironic. In verse 47, this blind dude said, calls Jesus son of David. That's the first time that title is used of Jesus in the book of Mark, which is intentional. He calls Jesus the son of David, the heir to the throne, the king. This is, and this is by the man who can't see. He sees that Jesus is the king, right? He sees that Jesus is coming as the king. While the ones who have seen his whole ministry can't see it, so that they're so blind that they don't even understand that their question about ruling at his right and left hand would actually be a coup, right? They're so blind to that, yet Bartimaeus's simple plea for mercy here reveals he sees way more than they do. And Jesus then becomes the servant of this blind beggar. And what's interesting is the crowd thinks Jesus thinks this dude needs to shut up. He's so lowly. Not only is he not seen by them in any other day, when people do notice him, they want him to shut up and go away. And Jesus says, that's the guy I'm going to serve. Which is just, it's, the irony here is crazy. And you, you, Jesus is putting, giving us a visual of everything he's taught them in one scene. And then he heals the guy. New creation bursts into the world. Life conquers death, meaning that new cells in his, his cells turn to life in his eyes. His physical eyes see what his eyes of faith saw along, all along in the glory of Jesus. And in this, this act, the new creation power comes to overturn the power structures and forces that would shut this man up and leave him destitute. And are now, through this act, shown... Unre- uncovered for their corruption and their moral stupidity. And the disciples now witness through this nobody, this beggar who is blind, the way of the kingdom. And through it comes new creation, power, flourishing, healing, and joy as the last person actually becomes first. Which is crazy, right? Helen Keller said it like this. This is a great quote from Helen Keller. She got it right on this one. The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. And, that's, and that's, that's what you see here. The disciples saw and heard Jesus, but are blind, and their sight blinds them. Their sight actually is blinding them to their blindness. <laughs> it's just crazy, right? They fail to see their true need, that they need healing. They need new eyes to see properly. They need new hearts to make them servants who will love and go to the grave with Jesus rather than strive for power. They need new desires, new ambitions, new everything. And rather than seeing this and going to Jesus for healing, they go to Jesus as if he is a social media manager who can facilitate them going viral and gaining power and influence in the world. Right? This is, this is what they think they need. As you sit here this morning, here's the question. Do you see your most pressing need of healing clearly today? If you do not, then hear this. Jesus became your servant by shedding his blood for you. And in his death, there is power that comes out of the grave and life to heal you. 
And He stands ready to give you new eyes to see rightly, new heart to desire rightly, and new needs to receive the kingdom from Him rather than to blindly pretend we can get the tools we need to build it ourselves. Right? He gives us healing. So what are your needs today? What do you need? Seeing your need to follow Jesus in self-denial through a grave? Seeing your need to be a nobody? Your need for healing? What would Emmaus Church look like if we needed those things and went to Jesus for them? What would, what would our church look like? What would your marriage look like? Parenting or your homes look like if you had those needs and built the kingdom of God out of your need for healing? We are truly a needy, dependent creature. And um, the good news is, is that through Jesus' cross, we have hope for that healing. So let's go to him and, and ask him for help to desire that as he calls us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I just confess that I know that my the, the needs I perceive in my life aren't the, the, aren't the needs that you express here. I fight against my real needs, as the disciples did. And Lord, I just pray that you would give not only me, but all of us sight to see what our real needs are. Sight to see that your power in us will take us through the grave safely. Um, and that whatever it is that we perceive we need is not the real thing. Um, and that you would help us to see our need is ultimately and finally fully in Jesus. Where we can have healing, hope, power, and all that we need from him to do all that you've called us to be and to do as a people. So I just pray that you would help us um, to be like Bartimaeus. And, um, and to trust you and your mercy for us. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen.